0: address books, video cameras, pagers, wristwatches, maps, books, travel games, flashlights, home telephones, dictation recorders, cash registers, walk day timers, alarm clocks and answering machines, yellow pages, wallets, keys, phrase books, transistor radios, personal digital assistants, dashboard navigation systems, remote controls, airline ticket counters, newspapers and magazines, directory assistance, travel and insurance agents, restaurant guides, and pocket calculators. What do all these things have in common? Paul Nunez is back with us to tell us and share the insights of his other book, the second in the series. It's there behind me Big Bang Disruption. Paul Nunez, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Thanks, it's great to be back.
0: Paul, let's get stuck in for each of those items I mentioned in the introduction, for example, the source of the disruption is the same. The programmable smartphone is a hybrid computing and communication device with an endless number of sub- small software apps, well beyond individual products and surfaces. services. You tell us the very process of innovation itself is being disrupted. Maybe that's a lead-in to tell us about this concept of big bang disruption.
1: Yeah, that's a, a great start because as you think about it, not only of all of those applications, all of those. Um, products and services uh, been interrupted, disrupted by innovation through the cell phone. But what's interesting is how quickly those markets disappeared. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. That's the big bang of big bang disruption. So what we've seen is a fundamental change, a disruption in the nature of disruption. And the way I like to think about it is to actually expand our view a bit about the history of innovation and try and understand innovation from all its dimensions. So the first part of innovation and traditional innovation was always sort of traditional product innovation. You invest in R&D, you discover something, you use technology, you use new capabilities to make something better and you charge the customer for that investment in the R&D, so generally the product costs more. So it's more expensive, but it's better. And this has sort of satisfied our innovation needs for, you know, decades or as long as we've studied business in many ways, but it's sort of the traditional nature of innovation. Invest in innovation, and you'll get paid back by the customers eventually when you find good things. Then around 1997... Clay Christensen, who I know you've had great exposure to on the show here, but Clay came out with a a great idea, which was the innovator's dilemma. And the insight there was that you could actually make things that were cheaper that would actually sell more than the more expensive product because it was cheaper and it really fit all of the needs. You know, in in economist terms, sort of, you know, the marginal utility of additional features was less than the cost of creating them. Um, So the product demand shifted down to these cheaper products. So it was a cheaper and as good kind of solution. But it's important that we think of that as in those terms, cheaper and as good for a market, maybe even a large, large section of the market. So that was a cost play of innovation. But then in 2006, we had... Kim and Muborgine came out with Blue Ocean Strategy, one of the first million seller thought leadership books, business thinking books. And Blue Ocean Strategy really reinvented this idea of innovation because what they said was, you know, invent in the blue ocean. Don't go in the red ocean where other people are. And what they said is, you know, you do that by mixing both the features and not really worrying about the price, and you'll come up with something new that people might like even better. Maybe it's more expensive. Maybe it's cheaper, but it's just new and somebody is going to like it. And I'll give you the two quick examples that they had. One was Formula One Hotels, which was, look, business um, folks don't really want crystal chandeliers. They don't need marble floors. They want a decent breakfast. They most importantly want a nice, a good bed so they can get a good night's sleep. And the features they want are particular, and they also kind of want a lower price. So let's design this to be for them. And it may not be for everybody. It might not be for tourists who really want the French, you know, uh, Parisian experience. But it'll be just fine for our folks in, in, in business. And the other one that was used in the book, and it's a great example, is Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil, you get rid of the elephants and the animals because they're really expensive and really hard to drive by train into the downtown of a city. So you just use human acrobats, and you can design a circus that actually works in an urban environment, costs a lot less. And, oh, in fact, because urbanites maybe like it better, they might pay more for that experience than they even would for a traditional circus. But that was the nature of Blue Ocean Strategy. Find your segment, find your right mix of offerings, and you're going to get something good. And that's the way to look at innovation. I like to think what we discovered in Big Bang Disruption and came to the end of that was really this idea that disruption has been disrupted and that there's a new way of thinking about competition. Now, it's interesting if you look at those three styles of innovation, they have something that they share which is each of them is actually a dimension of what Michael Porter and others call generic strategy, right? Because Porter originally said that there's only three ways to compete. You can be on product, on offering, on you know uh, differentiation, cost, or focus, niche. You could be closer to the customer. So I just like to just simplify it, you know. Uh, differentiation niche and closer to the uh, uh, differentiation cost and closer to the company, the customer. Now, the challenge is, and that was called um, a generic strategy. The problem is that Porter went so far as to say you had to compete on one of the three because otherwise you'd find yourself in a model. you'd be strategically straddling. And strategic straddle is the word they use. So, And I always say, I can't give you back your money. If you went to business school, I can't give you back your money. But I can explain to you why today what you learned is maybe is wrong. Because what we found in Big Bang Disruption is, wait a minute, there's a fourth option, which is I can compete on differentiation, cost, and niche all at the same time. And these new products then become better on every dimension of strategy. Now, how do I compete with something that's better on every dimension of strategy? I can't. What happens when people find out that there are products that are better on every dimension of strategy? They get adopted immediately. (laughs) How do I know that's going to happen? How do I see that coming? Well, you can't because when something isn't better on all three dimensions in today's world customers don't adopt it so it looks like they don't want it and that's a profound challenge as well because what customers do eventually want they spend a long time seemingly not wanting it um, and that's uh, a challenge so we'll go into that in a bit more in in detail and sort of take that apart but that's the fundamental challenge and the fundamental opportunity of this thing we call Big Bang disruption, as innovation, Moore's Law hits traditional innovation, and you get a, a new way of doing things.
0: For those of you who've been joining us for this series, part one was on jumping the S curve, that book was written in a diptych style. So it had two parts, the same for this book, part one is really about what's cha- driving these changes. And part two is then kind of the solution. What do you do about it? It's the antidote to this kind of changes as well. So we'll get through to that in part two today. But I thought we'd contextualize it for audience Paul, with some examples you open with some great examples. And please pick whichever ones you want to just go down the rabbit hole on here, Garmin, Tom, Tom Magellan and Rand McNally, and all their likely unlikely source of disruption. And what's interesting you say is, the source of disruption was not out to get them. It just didn't care what was in its path. It just wanted to build something new.
1: That's a great insight of my co-author, Larry Downs. He was the one who who really <laughs> recognized that. And I remember the day he said that to me. He's like, you know, Paul, as we're looking through this stuff, these competitors, they don't care. They're not actually out to kill these other competitors. They're just leaving them in the dust uh, because they're doing what comes naturally thanks to technology. So let's talk about that example, you know, we're talking about Garmin, but the question is, you know, what was Garmin? What was TomTom? These were standalone GPS devices. And I always say in 2007, something came along and, and I say, you know, how many people had a GPS device in their car and how many people were really satisfied with it? And then the audience always says, no, you know, don't like it. And I was like, well, why didn't you like it? And it's like, well, you know, it was never up to date. Sometimes I'd go down closed streets or roads and, um, you know, and I was like, well, why was it? So, because well, you had to buy the map every six months. And, you know, that was like $500 really in the old days, just to have them run a CD to put the new map on the car system. And the other problem was it wasn't really linked to anything else I was doing, particularly when the cell phone came out. So it destroyed Garmin and TomTom in those days was, of course, how do we do navigation today? We use Google Maps. So Google came out, or, you know, Waze or some of the others, but in 2007, Google came out with Google Maps. There had been other map apps, but really this was the dominant one, which intersected with our smartphone technology, and so it was free on your phone. And so what did Google Maps have that we just talked about? Differentiation. It was real-time updated as opposed to that. It had, you know, connections to where the gas stations were, all this other stuff. It was easy to build in constant innovation. It was constantly updated. It was constantly updating to your phone. Cost. How much did it cost? It was free. Free is always a good price. Now, there are some things that are actually cheaper than free. (laughs) So we can talk about that at some point. But really, free is a pretty good start for price competition. And then the last thing, which is interesting, and you have to think about it a little differently to understand the niche part, the focus part. But the idea is it was actually closer to the customer because you could integrate all of your contact addresses and any search you were doing on Google. You know, so if you searched a restaurant, you could easily convert that address into the Google Maps and get a Google Maps map to the restaurant or wherever you were trying to go. So, in fact, it was actually a very close to the customer and personalized product. And so it's like, wow, what happens when I introduce something like that? Well, and what happens is what we saw is that 80% of the market cap of Garmin disappears overnight. (laughs) Um, You know, revenues shrink, the whole thing. It's a disaster. It's, uh, It's not the innovator's dilemma. It's the innovator's disaster. So nearly overnight, you know, Garmin's business falls off. And most importantly, and as we think about it in many ways for share price, share price was destroyed even faster than the revenues once the market recognized, there's no way Garmin can compete
0: with this. Paul gives a plethora of great examples in the book, I'm going to let you buy the book and read the book to get those examples. One, for example, is how sleep centers sleep health centers are being disrupted by something like the smartphone, because you can monitor a lot of change in your sleep yourself now. So you don't even need to have the hardware anymore. So that's the way to think about this book. But Paul, I wanted to share the three characteristics that define a big bang disruptor, because oftentimes, like you give a great example of Napster, that the music industry, once that Napster was outlawed, the whole industry breathed a sigh of relief and went, phew, thank God that's over. And then along comes iTunes and that gives way to Spotify and a multitude of other services. So let's help our audience out here. If you're an incumbent, there's three characteristics that you need to spot for change being on its way. One, Paul identifies is undisciplined strategy, and we're going to take these one by one, two is unconstrained growth. And three, is unencumbered development. I'm going to share on the screen a diagram that Paul provides in the book in order for you to get really get your head around this. For those of you who are watching us on YouTube, you'll get the best benefits of that. But Paul and I will have empathy for you guys who aren't. And Paul, I'm going to tee you up for a quote about undisciplined strategy. You say here, big bang disruption contradicts everything you may already know about strategic planning. According to academics, including Porter, Tracy, Fred Versema, businesses should align strategic goals along one and only one of three value disciplines, low cost operational excellence, premium product, product leadership, or customized offerings, which is customer intimacy, failing to choose led to ending up in a model. Big bang disruptors, you tell us, however, are thoroughly undisciplined. They start life with better performance at lower price and greater customization. They compete with mainstream products and all three value disciplines, as you told us, right from the start. But you pose this huge question how can better also be cheaper? Over to you, Paul.
1: So, how can you be better, cheaper, and more customer intimate at the same time? Well, we have to go all the way back in some ways to Ronald Coase's transaction cost theory, right? Because what happens is when you have this technology, not only does Moore's Law make things cheaper, but it also destroys uh, transaction costs, which makes it much easier for people to conduct business and accelerate the business of innovation. But it also reduces the cost of things like platforms and stuff. So really, we saw four ways that things can be better and cheaper at the same time, thanks to technology. One was platform subsidies, cross subsidies, near or near zero marginal cost, and net negative cost of innovation. And I'll unpack all those for us for a second. So platform subsidies. And the great one there is, you know, it's this thing. It's the thing you started the discussion with. This is the ultimate platform. This is a supercomputer that Craig could never have imagined in every consumer's pocket, (laughs) essentially, essentially around the world. Um, This platform means I don't have to have a standalone GPS system to provide GPS services. It means I don't have to have a standalone platform to be a digital camera, to be a flashlight, to be a ruler, to be any of these things because I'm doing it off of a platform subsidy. And I'll give you a great example of that that I loved. I was in Brazil, and it turned out that the heat, it's so hot in Brazil that half of the liquor, the booze and the bottles and bars tends to evaporate. It disappears before it can be sold. I say that as a bit of a joke, because of course that's not the case. The case is simply that the booze is going away, but it's not getting paid for. And it turns out that, If you have to put in cameras to kind of watch what's happening to your liquor sales, that would be a problem. But since you have cameras in there already for security purposes, it turns out that a very creative company was able to use those cameras with a little bit of software to actually see how much was in the bottles before the evening started, how much was at the end, and then calculate how much should be in the till. Uh, I just love that story because. It's, uh, I think it's a really good example of that. That would never have been possible, and no big company, software company, would have gone off and tried to create that product if they weren't able to base it on the platform. So it's an idea, it's the sense of, you know, it's not just the phone, cell phones. Like, where are we seeing platforms that we can leverage that dramatically reduce the cost of new product to service entry? Second one is cross subsidies. Um subsidies and cross-subsidies, we think about Google uh, and Google Maps, and you say, well, Paul, you know, why is it free? Well, it's free partly because of the advertising and partly because of all the other things I think can be connected to it. You know, I can charge people to show their restaurant, their gas station, their, and all the other things I can do with selling the information and stuff – So we get into this really interesting thing of cross-subsidies, and I'll give you an example where outside of, so people don't think it's just this tech, but how every industry is being impacted, is the idea of auto insurance. Well, auto insurance when people are driving is really expensive because people make mistakes. Auto insurance when there's autonomous vehicles and the computers start making fewer and fewer mistakes driving, there's going to be fewer accidents. So if I buy a car that autonomously drives itself, how much should I pay for accident insurance? Well, that might be a very small price as a percentage. Now, what that means is maybe the customer is different. Maybe I don't sell insurance to the driver. Maybe I sell it to the maker of the vehicle. Maybe I sell it to them. So what happens is not only do cross-subsidies mean source, different sources of payment, but you really have to think about you know who is a potential customer for me so, you know the, the the automaker isn't going to want to pay a thousand dollars a year for insurance to give the customer insurance but they might be able to pay 5 or 10 dollars a year and just build it into the cost of the car so cross subsidies becomes this new fascinating area of innovation third way you can be cheaper and better is zero or near zero marginal cost and that just goes to the whole newspaper digital sort of things like once i have a copy doesn't matter. But I'll give you a real example where it was interesting how we still have this digital cost advantage challenge, which is during the mortgage crisis in the U.S., a lot of banks had to get appraisals for home prices um, every year to make sure whether or not they were underwater on their mortgage. Well, it turns out if I have to appraise everybody's home just to find out whether they're underwater on their mortgage, you know, the house is worth less than the um, the loan is, now I have all of these house appraisals so I can sell them to the consumer. So what happened is the banks became a new sort of supplier um, for appraisals. Now, that's not a problem for most people, but it's a problem for companies, small com- or all the small companies that were selling appraisals for $500 a piece. And now every consumer of a mortgage was getting a free appraisal every year to the bank that was handling its mortgage. And again, you don't see it coming. It just happens overnight. And then the last one I love because the name is technical. You know, Mark Twain had a, a, a saying that uh, Wagner's music is better than it sounds. Um, <laughs> I like to think net negative cost of innovation is a better idea than it sounds. And what ne- negative cost of innovation means in a nutshell is. Because of technology, we can sort of understand it because of cheaper supply chains. I mean, now you can send a sneaker halfway around the world for three cents on a shipping container. And these are all byproducts of Moore's Law, really. It's the lower cost of of managing, tracking, all of the things that go into cost reduction. Huge amounts of deflation. Everything in the world is deflating. And we'll talk a bit more uh, about that when we get to pricing power stuff. But what's interesting is... Despite the speed of deflation, there's also the costs of innovating and the costs of innovating are going down. We have hackathons, which I love we can talk a bit about that, right? You go out and you just ask customers or you ask, you know, college kids, hey, you know, can you hack me something together that would solve this problem that I have? Um, you know, in a sense, it allows you to put your big technical questions out and, and ask for feedback. So the cost of R and D actually goes down as well. But there's a, a an inflection point that says if you spend less on innovation, then you're saving on deflation. The next version can actually be better and cheaper. And where's the the example that really drives that home? Is think of an Apple iPhone, right? Every year it comes out, or every year or so, in the fall, it comes out with more features, better stuff, stuff that had to be researched, and it's a better product. But at the same time, all the cost of the chips inside the iPhone and everything else came down in that year or two, thanks to Moore's Law. So what I can do if I'm Apple is I can introduce a better product at the same price point, or even less, than the prior one. And so we see that a lot. We see that in automobiles. The real price of an automobile, the real price, um, has gone down for 40 years despite the fact that we get power windows. We get all these things that go on in windows Nobody really, or go on in cars. Nobody realizes that the real cost of a car as a percentage of, say, the average family income for a year has gone down for 40 years. But it's not the same car. It's a much better car. Um, in fact, you can't even get some of the features that, you know, everything. So I can't get a car without power windows. Try getting a car with, you know, I wanted my kids to have roll-up windows <laughs> in a car. So it was like, it was actually kind of hard. It's like, oh, yeah, getting a model that has, you know, non-power windows, you know, and it, and it's like, you know, we don't really have those in stock. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, you know, and, and so all of that stuff kind of builds in for free. Um, but into the next product. And so we see this phenomenon of better and cheaper just everywhere, whether it's, you know, coaching for college and college testing, for example, done online through Zoom or whatever. So all these things, different ways of delivery, the, the deflationary costs, it just gets better and cheaper. And so we've been living through this era of better and cheaper innovation that's been phenomenal for the consumer.
0: You say here, once the right combination of technologies and business models come together in a successful market experiment, mainstream consumers move en masse to the winner. The adoption curve has become something closer to a straight line that shoots straight up and then falls rapidly when saturation is reached, or a new disruption appears. So those life cycles of being at the top are so transient today.
1: And this one actually comes like you said, it's um, Everett Rogers created the bell curve and the segments, the customer segments that we all know and love of you know, early adopters, the innovators, the early adopters, the late adopters, laggards. Those are all terms that are in a you know our conventional strategy or uh, business lexicon um, because of Everett Rogers, and everybody kind of believes in the bell curve. But it turned out that we recognized that one of the features of Big Bang Disruption in the Nature of Moore's lawyers is, is the thing we called uh, near-perfect market information. And that's a bit of a mouthful. But what happens is, but the short of that is simply, and the example we like in the book and the example I love is my co-author and I were in New York. He's a vegetarian. It was late. We wanted to get some dinner. We walked, you know, you can't ask the hotel where to go because if you ask the hotel, they'll say, you know, the hotel restaurant's lovely, right? Uh, So we went out the door, the front door, we took a right. And in a moment, we were at a Thai restaurant. And the question is, did we go into the Thai restaurant and have a Thai dinner? It's like, you know, would you? And the answer is no, of course. Well, what's the first thing you would do? You whip out your phone and you look at TripAdvisor or Yelp or one of these services and find out, like, is it any good for real? What are people saying? And so the idea in short there is, and of course it turned out to be one of the better restaurants supposedly in New York. Everybody loved it. We went in and had a fantastic meal. But the lesson is, if I won't take a chance on a plate of pad thai, you know, one night, what are the odds I'm going to buy your product without doing my research and knowing what the heck is? And so I asked the other question, you know, the question oftentimes when I talk about this, you know, what if, um, you know, how many Teslas need to burn before people get the idea they catch on fire? And the reality is, you know, pretty much one, but two or three or four, and and all of a sudden it gets around, right? You know, a, a lie gets around the world, as Mark Twain, you know, I guess I like Mark Twain. These days. A lie gets around the world, you know, before the truth gets its shoes on, Right. But today, that's ever more true. And, you know, whether it's a lie or true, we have to realize we're living in this world of near-perfect market information. Now, what that means for Big Bang Disruption is it means that we don't have products that start, get better, word gets around, it's getting better, more and more people buy it. We use the profits of that, of those early adopters to, you know, invest more in research, make the product better, and come up this curve and all that. Now we only have two segments. We have experimenters, you know, early adopters and the masses. Because, you know, like the example of, you know, I've, I'm old enough, we're old enough to remember when you would buy like a, a watch from Japan that was digital and say, so, you know, it was really expensive. Sometimes it was better, but most times it wasn't as good. A video recorder kind of thing it wasn't as good as the alternative, but it was cool. And, it was really expensive, sometimes really expensive. <clears throat> and now you say, well, what, what happens today if you buy something really expensive that doesn't really work well? Do people say you're a brilliant innovator on the edge or do they say you're kind of foolish, man? <laughs> Why didn't you wait for the right one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's really more the latter now, right? Buying something that's too expensive for too little value is just kind of foolish. So what happens is changing selling changes dramatically in that we have to sell to people willing to take a chance and then learn from their experience. What happens is you fail, 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 fail. But then once it's successful, once people say, "Yeah, it's all together," you succeed wildly. And Kindle's a great example of that. So You get, you know, this unconstrained growth and what we actually call catastrophic success, because what can happen is, and you see it all the time, you know, demand is way beyond what any company can satisfy. I'll give you a great example of that. I like it. There's a company called American Giant, and I love it because of the bit of hubris of the name American Giant. How big do you think American Giant is? Well, it was really, you know, about 30 people, $30 million in sales, maybe whatever it was. They made sweatshirts. But they had the good fortune many years ago that Slate.com put out an article that said it had the best sweatshirts in the entire world, coolest, best, whatever. And so then the question was, well, how many sales did that generate? And it turned out it generated 500,000 requests for sweatshirts made by a small company in California. Now, you would say, well, great, you know, so they must have had five thousand, five hundred thousand sweatshirt sales that year. And the answer is, of course, they couldn't. They had no ability to deliver anything close to that. And nobody who wants a fashion product wants to wait a year for a sweatshirt, right? So you can understand that there's a tremendous amount of lost sales there. And it's not just, you know... Companies like small, you know, boutique, custom-made sweatshirts, because, you know, they would put sequins and stuff on it. It was uh, it was pretty hard to make. But even technology companies, whether it's, you know, Sega Genesis or any of the, right, I mean, any of these technologies that we see, they wind up out of stock. You look at Bronco, Ford Bronco, the introduction in the U.S. of the return of the Ford Bronco and now how long, you know, return this. But it turns out that you have this huge risk then in the question of how much capability and how much inventory do I have? And we'll talk some more about that um, as we go along. But that's this idea of unconstrained growth. Once you get it right, demand takes off. And then, of course, you saturate the market. And then we can talk about like GoPro and that because once you ha- once everybody has it, so you find a way to satisfy the market. Once everybody has it, the decline in the demand is almost as fast as the run-up and that yields what we call the shark fin so there is no bell curve of adoption anymore it's really the shark you know long story short too late for that we end on this shark fin shape and it turns out that really you have to manage your business to the shark fin not to a bell curve
0: that's why i really understood the second part of Jumping the S curve where culture is so important, how people think, the way your management thinks, and also the people who are managing the business when it's at near the top of the curve are very different from the people who are finding out where the next curve is coming from. And you have to almost oscillate between those two kind of modes of being as well with inside the organization at the same time, because the speed is so quick because of that shark fin.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, the two or three things you have to deal with. And when you've got that, you have to realize that because you're competing against products that are better on all dimensions, you don't really have segments of consumers that are making the trade-offs. The thing is you're losing all these trade-offs. The other thing that you have is you have 40 years or 20 years of, you know, uh, and I love his work. He's a great guy. Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. But Crossing the Chasm was an idea in an era which said, all right, you know, the tough part is getting from the innovators, getting enough money out of the innovators and the early adopters to get to the late adopters. And so there was that chasm and it was like, well, how can I sell enough? to To make it better enough to get there and stuff, but now obviously the, the speed at which things get adopted and, and you know who the customer is it has accelerated so much that you don't have that, and you have the problem of um, which we'll get into the third part, which is the unencumbered development. You've got this problem of when consumers don't see it better on all dimensions, they just reject it and it sort of fails. Um, Or it looks like a failure. And so a couple of good products we have there, you know, a a good one to see that with and we want to make it real is uh, e-readers and e-books, right? Um, And the idea is, well, there were actually a ton of makers of e-books before there was Kindle. You know, there was, um, you know, Rocket, -rocket, e-Rocket, e-book, Rockets, um, da-da-da. Lots of them. And then the question we can ask is well, how many products, how many e-readers did Amazon release before it released the Kindle? And the answer is none. <laughs> it didn't have any run up to its success. It didn't because it didn't bother creating products that weren't going to be weren't going to dominate the market. So what they did instead is they watched very carefully and learned from, you know, it's the Klausovich uh you know, insight of strategy, right. Which is I prefer to learn from other people's mistakes um, rather than my own. Uh, You know, they watched very carefully. It's like, all right, well, so it's, I guess it's about battery length, battery power and readability and paper white, um, you know, for the contrast on the screen and all these different things um, until we got to the exact. And so we talked a little bit about that in the last sessions. But now uh, it becomes that much more critical because if you spend time making products that that you know won't meet the customer's breakthrough point, then they're just going to fail in those small curves because today with with near-perfect market information, somebody's going to say, you know, it wears my eyes out? My eyes get tired from the contrast. It's not good. And whether or not that's going to be true for everybody else doesn't matter the thing is they're going to read it on amazon reviews and they're going to believe it and it's going to and you're going to see the failure of that offering so experimentation and low cost experimentation becomes critically important now in innovation because what i have to do is i have to find out is it good enough or isn't it good enough and i have to find out that i have to find that information fast and cheap so i can understand my thresholds and I have to understand that just because consumers are rejecting the threshold, uh, are rejecting something at a current threshold, doesn't mean they're not going to love the product incredibly once it meets the threshold.
0: I might tee you up for that with with a quote: the idea of unencumbered development. And I, I wanted as well, Paul. Maybe you might expand on this one. Is Often on the show we'll talk about the need to be disciplined within innovation. And I don't want our audience to get confused with this idea of undisciplined strategy. It's not that it's undisciplined, it's a new discipline.
1: It's undisciplined strategy. It's not undisciplined innovation. (laughs) And so that's an actually it's a great point that you raise, and we want to keep that. It's undisciplined strategy because we're not limiting ourselves in a strategy to one of the generic strategies. So that's that insight. But innovation is very focused and very limited because otherwise you you could you'd run out of uh, investment costs. The costs would overwhelm it, even though the costs have come down in experimentation. But that's why you have to have two or three different ways of approaching this. Um, this disciplined—it's actually disciplined innovation, which is I need to know all of the constraints. I need to understand why on every strategic dimension, customers aren't buying. Why isn't it cheap enough? Why isn't it good enough? Why do you think it's not right for you? And then, you know, we talked in the last session, the the example I loved about the $399 price point, right? It's like, you gotta know the price point exactly because that's where you can buy it without your spouse's permission. Uh, but you need to know, you need to learn these things ahead of time and, and, and know these. And so then what happened is, you know, when they went to market, Kindle was an enormous success. Now, the other thing to remember about Kindle, um, which gives us a little preview into, you know, we'll talk about uh, in a bit. But this idea that, you know, how many Kindles did Amazon make? And the reality is, well, yeah, I'll give you a number, but they didn't make any of them. Foxconn made the original Kindles (laughs) and Foxconn also made the the iPhone. So guess what? We've got somebody else even doing the making and and that goes to the whole and the transaction costs and this opportunity now that we have two things. We have with lower transaction costs, we have an enormous increase in the ability to use third-party partners Um, but we also have an enormous ability to recombine components into new innovations. i will take a little from here, a little from that, put it together and I'll get something else. So let me say a few more words about that. Another example, um, which is drones, and most of us have been annoyed by a drone recently, or at least I have. <laughs> you can't go to a beach, you can't go to, a, you know, right? Uh, so, but barring my uh, disapproval or dislike of drones, the, the the fact is they they help us identify and spot disease in palm oil trees. We actually did a lot of that at Accenture, um, you know. So there are enormous business benefits to drones. But the key is the question of, well, why did drones sort of come out of nowhere? And, you know, what made this phenomenon possible? And then you ask yourself, well, what is it that the drone has that makes it possible? Well, drones have, you know, plastic propellers and stuff. Well, we've always had plastic. But they have nice cameras, cheap, even video cameras. So, you know, a cheap video camera. They have to have gyroscopes, really cheap, you know, and you say like, well, you know, where have I seen all of these components before? And all of a sudden it dawns on you. It's like, well, hey, that's just a flying smartphone. And the key is it's not figuratively a flying smartphone. It's literally a flying smartphone because the providers of all these component parts are the people are the same companies that supply the phone companies, but they've run out of customers because like, there's only so many phones. It's like, well, if I make high performance lenses and cameras for phones and phone sales peak, how do I double camera sales? Well, I gotta put it on something else. So what we see is this recombination of all these different components, and then somebody says, you know. I bet I can get a lot of these parts cheap from these people because it'll be incremental value out of their factories that may not be running at full capacity. They're going to want to see more sales. You know, the meme chip, uh, mem chip folks that do gyroscopes and that they're going to, want. you know, it's like once the connect wears out, once um, you know, the, Wii. Um, thing wears out. It's like, well, what do you do with those chips? How do you sell more of those chips? You know, so they're glad to see it. And so, this idea of you know, so there's never been a better time for recombinant innovation and, and entrepreneurs in that way.
0: I was going to share a quote, and there's I love your writing in in these books as well, and I I wanted to share this with the view of this idea of experimentation, because. Many incumbents think they have some type of competitive moat with costs, for example, and that they have R and D teams, etc. And and you say that is no longer the way with Bing Bang disruption because the access and this idea of recombination. You even talked about, for example, Steve Jobs and the Atari when Nolan Bushnell wrote about that. For example, like hacking together bits and pieces. But this quote will tee you up, and please think about the, maybe your response from the perspective of what you've seen with incumbents thinking that they have this competitive moat, which no longer exists, you say here, the third characteristic of big bang disruptors is that they are often born of rapid fire, low cost experiments on ubiquitous technology platforms and existing infrastructure, development is unencumbered by the need for a business case, or even a work plan, which kills so many innovators within inside organisations. Experiments you tell us often conducted with real users directly in the market don't need budget approval, or and aren't vetted before development begins. When cost is low and ex- expectations are modest, entrepreneurs can just launch their ideas and see what happens. Now that's something Paul that doesn't happen in large organisations, you need permission, then you have this idea that the innovator goes, You're better off seeking forgiveness than permission, which eventually kills the idea further than the line because you don't have the backing of the organization. And also then there's a change in mindset, as you told us in Jumping the S-curve, where organizations are becoming more open to a small idea with a small revenue stream at the beginning. In the past, they wouldn't even bat their eyelids at such things. Over to you to maybe expand whichever way you want on this.
1: There's a couple of ways I I want to talk about that. I mean, one is the classic sort of the problem is you don't know what you don't know. And what happens is in the past, you would learn what you didn't know by going out to the customer and listening to them and maybe surveying them, watching them. But all these things had enormous costs. So the cost of learning, the decrease in the cost of learning about your customers is so profound that now anybody can learn from your customers and may not be you. And it turns out that it's actually harder for you to learn about your customers than it is for other competitors and even an entrepreneur. And, you know, give you some sort of examples, even with, you know, closer to home for me, but right? the thing is like, you know, even as a researcher, when you work as a researcher for a large company, you have to ask permission. You can't talk to these people. And you probably know this for yourself as they uh, say, <laughs> It's like, you can't, you know, you can't go to my client. You can't talk to folks. And, you know, you want to talk to the CEO of what, you know, it's like, whereas if you're a journalist and or, you know, a researcher or oftentimes even an entrepreneur, yeah, you can get in and talk and you can talk turkey with these folks and, uh, and it's fine. And so it's exactly right to your point in that what happens is the democratization of customer insight is a problem. So now you've got lots of other people realizing that hey, knowledge is power, knowledge is money. So if I know something about your customer that you don't. They like this. They need it to last, you know, they're not going to buy an e-reader seriously unless it lasts weeks. They're not going to be charging it every day because or you know, just some nugget of innovation insight that can be worth something to me. So I'm going off to find it, and you've got millions of people all trying to find what it is that people want. And so what companies need is a new way to gather those insights. And that's why I say it's you know, innovation is more focused than ever, even though it feels unfocused. Because if you're in charge of innovation at a large company, you've got to be saying, you know, what what what's flowing back to me about what I know about what the customer and the customer wants and what's possible and I don't even know what are the costs, you know, what is it going to cost me to build this thing, even if they wanted it. So you're just inundated with all this information. And then there's the fact that, you know, there's all these other people going out and getting it. And so that's why we saw things like hackathons and all these other things that have become kind of standard, the, you know, the eyeball monitoring. And what you have to do is you have to bring innovation to the learning. Because if you, you know, if you're relying on, People going out than permissioning your employees and having enough employees, and that's the interesting thing that we love in studying this was you can't hire enough people to beat the market in terms of understanding market insight, right? So the point is, you know, you got five thousand commentators on you know TripAdvisor telling you what the hotel is like. Well, no hotel can go off even when it surveys people because people don't give you the. The honest answer, right? So a curious thing with something like TripAdvisor, just as an example of a customer, a place where customers can do uh, sort of real reviews, people will say things to a TripAdvisor that they won't say on a customer survey, right? I mean, is the classic, uh, the whole thing of you know, if I'm in the restaurant, the, the server, the waiter, or whatever you want to call it, you, know, comes over. It's like, you know, did you enjoy your meal? Oh, yes, it was lovely. Thank you. It's like, no, I didn't. The steak was overcooked. He uh, was like, yeah, I, but I'm not going to tell that to you. I'm going to <laughs> I'm I'm wait till I get back you know, on uh, TripAdvisor, OpenTable, whatever, and then I'm going to let you have it. Um, so this whole thing is it's hard to find out uh, information. The other side that I wanted to share the story of, just because I loved it, um, because most of us don't remember the name Nolan Bushnell, but Nolan Bushnell was the founding CEO of Atari. And Nolan Bushnell, not only being the founding CEO of Atari, was actually good friends with Steve Jobs, who worked at Atari for a time. And when Steve Jobs was pulling together Apple, Nolan said, hey, you know, as you're building your little computers there, if you need parts, you can use the parts from my warehouse. Just to help yourself take what you need, you can have it at cost. Huh. So what was one of the key parts that Steve Jobs needed to make his personal computer work? Well, he needed the modulator that connects the TV to this PC so that you wouldn't have to buy a separate monitor. Now, how do you make a TV work with a piece of electronics that's projecting stuff. Well, Atari had that all figured out because that's how Pong and all those worked. So it turned out, that you know, it's a great story and it comes from uh, one of the books of c But the reason that's so important when you think about it is that if you didn't, it, even as early as the Apple computer, if it weren't for access, you know, wide access to parts, at a low cost, that innovation wouldn't likely have not happened, or wouldn't have happened for years. So the power of low-cost components, whether it's for drones, whether it's for Apple PCs, whatever it's for, if it's for putting, you know, screens onto refrigerators, right? Why do we put TV screens on refrigerators? I don't know. Why not? <laughs> you know, why don't why don't I have a TV screen? Um, you know, and then yeah, another thing we looked at, which was really interesting, too, is that, you know, the the technical specs of everything are available everywhere. So, you know, I can decompose parts as it seems like, you know, now I'm a, a dishwasher repair person because I can go in. I can see the, the blown out schematics. I can see the exact part I need. I order that. Right. You know, you can do this. 10, 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't really do it a few years ago, but you know how wonderful it is now that you can find and replace the part and you can order. But if I can do that, how easy as an entrepreneur, I can build my own washing machine by parts. I can build anything I want from parts. Um, So it's a profound age of recombinant innovation
0: it sure is and i was telling you we've yossi sheffi coming on the show and and that's what i found so interesting about his book about he, he calls it the the magic conveyor belt where all these component parts come together and it's kind of miraculous how organizations can just bring all these pieces together get them created and get them to people on time and how also we're in this age of complexity where you know you have some change like the COVID pandemic and all of a sudden some part, some key part of my product is gone and I can't develop it anymore. We'll, we'll come back to that again. Paul, there's one last thing I wanted to come to, which was the maybe the last thought on the economics of big bang disruption, because you asked two big questions here. Why now? And why so loud? So we talked in part one on jumping the S curve about Moore's law, and in particular about how costs are coming down. But you also say, it's the same with the costs of R&D. And this links to what you've just talked about is that I'm going to link it back to our previous episode, part two of jumping the S curve, edge centric strategy, where you're actually touching the edges of society you know, new marginal behaviours in in the environment, but also within your organisation, people who think differently and are differently neurodiverse individuals, people who are more creative, more entrepreneurial, that they're the edge within your organisation as well. There's a brilliant little excerpt here I wanted to share before you take it away. And this will help perhaps our audience get their head around this and also give you a flavour of the writing in the book, you say Exponential technologies are also driving down the cost of R&D. Typically, these costs, which include the price of conducting basic research prototyping, and where necessary, obtaining regulatory approval before market launch are built into the price of each unit of the new goods that are sold. So developers must be careful to balance the need to recover research costs with the need to attract new customers. If the new offering is a big hit, and millions of units are sold recovering research costs will be easy but to ensure the big hit it often makes sense to charge a lower price at first to stimulate new markets foregoing early profits for many enterprises that's a delicate balance and a risk that's hard to predict or to hedge that kills so many fledgling ideas because maybe you have the innovation team who are saying, we need to lower the price. You know, you've written a book. I've written a book. I wanted the price of the book to be lower (laughs) to get it out there. And then maybe when it's a hit, increase the cost. Same thing with a new product. And it really is this trade-off. The good news that I see in that is that it's actually an
1: advantage in many ways for the incumbent who actually has some money to invest and maybe a deep pocket to continue to invest in learning. Actually, entrepreneurs can more quickly run out of the money to build experiments, for example. So they only get so many, ch- you know, if you have so much seed money, you only get so many shots at, at building it. Now, when we think about building something, testing it, and then learning, because it really comes down to learning. And I think it's really important to think about that as it comes to artificial intelligence now that we're talking about. Because the key as I mentioned, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And the key to innovation is sort of learning what will sell at what price and why, and then building that product. But getting all of that learning and knowing what are the relevant dimensions and all of that, we need new ways of bringing that all together so that we have this learning experimentation phase. That's why I said there are two segments. There's a learning and experimentation phase, and then there's the product launch phase when we know it's going to be good. But in that earlier phase, it's exactly to your point, how much do we spend, how much, you know, and how good does it have to be? And it's interesting, I think, and challenging because there are showstoppers, there are existential questions of like, look, if it's not, um, you know, of a certain, the video quality isn't of a certain quality, They're just not going to buy it, period, because it doesn't work, you know. And then maybe once it's at a threshold, it works, but, you know, it doesn't work. So like GoPro, maybe it's like, well, GoPro may not be interesting at 720, you know, P or whatever it is. But at uh, 1080, it is because now you can really see it. And so now it's not some grainy thing. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can see the guy going over the cliff. I can see me going over the cliff. But knowing, and that's probably a pretty good example to make it real about, knowing that 720 versus 1080 is not going to work and why it takes some learning. And you may actually have to, you know, to find out 720 doesn't work, you may have to actually release the camera and find out it doesn't work. Customers, you know. So it's this trade off of learning and, and investment that still exists. It was always the case in innovation, but now there's different ways of learning. Um, that companies have to quickly embrace and really drive down their cost curve. I mean, the last thing I'll add is that, you know, when I started in thought leadership, even, you know, when we learned we'd do customer surveys and Boomerang came around and wow, you know, $3 million research projects became $300,000 projects, became 30000 became $3,000. I could get 10,000 customer responses on a question I wanted to know the answer to complete overhaul reinvented the cost of, of research
0: there's one last thing I wanted to th- because you mentioned that there your your experience as a thought leader many of our audience are also lone wolf consultants like myself like yourself now where we do keynotes and we do thought leadership writing etc and one of the things that came to mind as a kind of an analogy as I read throughout your work is that organizations, need to be constantly collecting information. And that information is, you need to connect, you need to collect dots in order to connect them. And oftentimes, this goes back to what we're talking about in part two of Jumping the S Curve, when you're so focused, you miss changes in the environment, you miss eclectic reading, for example, because you're so focused in your little niche, and you need to be the master of that niche. Yes, you do. But you also need to almost know a little bit more about a lot, rather than just really, really focused. And it's something that always struck me about you and your writing is that you told me as well on one of our our chats in preparation for this series that you read every single paper every single day. And I just wanted to share that on a personal level, for people to almost update themselves and to prepare themselves for this change that society is going through the workplace is going through, working is going through is that you need to kind of broaden your horizons about how you think and also give yourself time to think
1: yeah i'd say that's um you know a tremendous part of this whole innovation thing i mean we've talked a little bit about it uh, today here this trade-off of focus versus expansion but um you know you really have to be able to see some of the stuff on the periphery and and particularly if you're going to try and understand why customers reject certain things, right? Because the the challenge is, in a, is sometimes not finding what customers love. It's finding out why they don't love something. <laughs> and, uh, and that can be tough. And sometimes that requires knowing a bit about, you know, customers underlying beliefs, morals, and values, you know, So it's like, yeah, this may be a better product for me, but I don't like, you know, you even see it today with some of the pushback of, you know, dare I say, kind of woke companies, but it's sort of, you know, but that has to be brought into the mix, this idea of, well, I may love your product, but if I don't like what you stand for, I may not buy it, whether that's right or wrong. But the thing is, how do I know ahead of time before I put my foot in it, that you know what you're thinking, what your values are as a customer and that. And so to your point, um, we need to use the technology, I think, not just to learn the simple functions, but to really understand sort of a bit of the 360 of the customer um, so that we
0: can be both successful and stay successful beautiful way to end today's episode. We're going to be back on for part two. And we've so much to talk about. We, we've only got to chapter two, by the way, Paul, and coming up in in part two, and maybe even a part three, is we're going to talk more about the shark fin for sure. We're going to talk about the singularity, the big bang, the big crunch and entropy, and bring all those concepts to life as well. It's a fascinating book. I have a copy there behind me, I highly recommend it it's on Kindle, it's on hardback, you'll find it on Amazon, Big Bang Disruption. And I want to sincerely thank the author of that book. And he's joining us again for more episodes, and hopefully again into the future. Paul Nunes, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Aiden.